This episode of Clip Machine contains a content advisory warning. The subject of cannibalism is touched on. Listener discretion is advised. My name's Martin, Martin Chan. My favorite food is lasagna. I don't like eggplant and durian. Hi, my name's Vicky. I really like Italian food, especially pizza. Um, my favourite pizza is mushroom and ham. And I don't like jelly. My name is James James Bond. Uh, I like sushi and my favourite sushi is salmon sushi. I don't like the fast food restaurant food in Hong Kong and uh, I really don't like hamburgers and potato chips. Yes I do. Uh, in the UK I used to cook a lot and I like to cook honey glazed gammon with ham but I don't cook that anymore in Hong Kong because I don't have an oven. I'm reasonably likely to eat the insects that I have in the house, uh, that show up in the house, unless they're cockroaches. And that's not really a bias against cockroaches. I've had three different species of cockroach. One of them is kind of tasty. One of them is wretchedly, disgustingly bad. And uh, one of them is okay, not great. But ants in the house, those I'll eat. Hornets or yellow jackets in the house, those I will capture and release. Spiders I just leave alone. Spiders, I like the idea of living with them because, look, they're colleagues. Sonia is, this is my daughter, Sonia. It's, it's to be expected that she would pick up the preferences and the biases of our culture. So she's exposed to cultural norms. People want to do what keeps them safe. Now, the big irony here is that our attachment to beef and pork and the lifestyle like driving these cars that goes along with that, that is the big threat against us. But most people are going to be more terrified of insects. People think insects, they're going to think these brown marmorated stink bugs, which are an agricultural hazard, but they're not a household hazard, even though they congregate in houses in the winter. They're also an invasive that's quite edible. And I've been trying to secure a good supply of them. So everything you're hearing pretty much are orthoptera, which are grasshoppers, katydids, and crickets. And so there's, oh, I don't know, three or four or five species of grasshoppers and katydids that I get here. I also get dragonflies. Different kinds of insects will aggregate, will congregate on their own, or you can convince them to do that through a light trap. Plus, there are a bunch of insects, including some edible kinds, that have chemical attractants. So if you simply put the right scent out, they will congregate to the scent automatically. You could spend two hours uh, doing that and you'd have enough food for 20 people. So, but the funny thing is, I was an extremely finicky oh eater God, as a what's child. what's that one? Ah, well, these are, these are eaten in uh, Papua New Guinea, but they're also raised as pets 
these are a species of walking stick. So what I like to do is I have a, I have a rubber lobster upstairs, and when I, when I do the stuff for the kids, what I like to say is, uh, we're going to pretend this is a large grasshopper, even though it works as a walking stick. And I have the, the big lobster, right? So I say, okay, let's pretend we're at a restaurant, a fancy restaurant with no menus. There's no menus in this restaurant. And the waiter says, well, sir, well, madam, in this hand, I have a creature with many legs and a hard shell that eats uh, flowers and leaves. And you look at it and you go, oh my God, flowers and leaves. Look at that thing with the shell and the many legs. That's disgusting. Take it away. It's disgusting. You're gross. Oh, wait, but wait, what's in your other hand? Well, in this hand, I have something with many legs and a hard shell that eats feces and trash and dead things. And you go, oh, I want that one. Oh, yes. So do you not eat lobster and crab? I love lobster and crab. <laughs> because I don't have any problem with eating something that's the, basically the cockroach of the sea. Because if I eat the cockroach of the land, why not of the ocean? And you know what? I'll be honest with you. Most insects do not taste better than lobster, as far as I'm concerned. A couple of them taste as good, or just different. Most, I mean, lobster's pretty freaking amazing. Would you agree? I would agree. All right. Mm. Remember, there's nothing else. There's nothing else in the pan. What does it taste like? A popcorn-like snack. No. Oh. I recognize that entomophagy is not the kind of thing that's going to get a lot of widespread adoption until we desperately need it. Unfortunately, by that point, <laughs> the amount of chaos and uh, civil upheaval is going to probably be really ugly. Insects represent a whole bunch of solutions to problems that we create. So in a way, we have to go towards insects sooner or later. Which means that I get to be right eventually. Gently on the palm of his hand, 
frail, sentient being fated to crave the substance I lacked. A year later, my brother was born. We were called the twins, always together, yet so different. He, like other little children, had a roundness and fullness to his body, whilst I, with arms and legs like pencils, had no softness to me. I was all straight lines. What tends to happen in all of these cases is that the person finds themselves increasingly taken over by the fantasy. Uh, the thing becomes increasingly obsessive, but it happens very slowly. It's like walking into a pond inch by inch until um, it reaches the point where suddenly the, what began as something fairly mild is turned into something uh, quite horrific. I think that happens fairly suddenly too. Uh, quite suddenly, overnight almost, um, you've taken a decisive step in fantasy into something um, new and more horrible. And this really sticks with you from then on. It's like crossing a Rubicon. My yearning and adoration for something so different from my own physique grew stronger and stronger. I'm a weak, small, short, ugly man. I know that. That's the plain truth. I was about to act according to a scenario I'd written myself. Sometimes people misunderstand and say it was an impulsive act and that I was sexually infatuated. But it wasn't like that. It was premeditated. Every step had been decided every piece of the scenario written. I see something white. I put my hand on the doorknob. To my surprise, the door is unlocked. There's a particular smell. Look, short hair. Is it a he or a she? Jean or Jean? Man or a woman? I pull back the blanket. The soft curves. Must be her breasts. Wait. Jean. Jean Seberg. I see her mouth. Deep wrinkles. She looks very tired, but I recognize her. My body starts shivering. I replace the blanket. Now is my opportunity. I quietly shut the car door and go back to my flat, to the basement. <laughs> understood but I'll say it anyway the curiosity of what human flesh would taste like the flesh of a beautiful woman it was just so strong something that however much I thought about it or imagined it I thought I could never fulfill myself unless I did it I am the one who in June this year killed a young Dutch girl and ate her flesh and was arrested
fish. I don't like that you have to eat fish in its true form. I'd rather eat things that don't look like what they look like. I want some deep fried balls of fish. Birthday cake. Often it's pink and it is devoid of nutrients. I can't stop eating sugar. I can't stop eating sugar. days just urine and um, when I completed that urine fast at the end of it I, I basically lost a whole bunch of weight I, I cured a whole bunch of things that was wrong with me um, and, uh, and generally right now I'm, I'm in the best shape of my entire life one of the things that I found uh, after finishing the fast was that I didn't actually need to eat very much um, I, I actually went eight days without eating um, I'd just forgotten to eat for eight days and it wasn't until somebody asked me out to, to lunch that I realised, oh, I haven't eaten for a while. Hmm, oh, it's been about eight days, wow. Um, and that led to the question, um, how can it be that I, I could go eight days without eating and not even notice it? And then this book popped up in front of me. What this book talked about was how we are all actually breatharians. Now, a breatharian is somebody who doesn't need to eat, who realises that our bodies aren't made up of the food that we put in, inside ourselves. We're essentially built from cosmic radiation, um, from, from you know, the universe as such. And, and what we do is condense that radiation to, into material substance. It's not food that uh, uh, becomes part of us. You know, we, we, we're not made up of food. And the only other thing that we actually need is the breath of life. Um, the, the inspiration, that's where it comes from. The respiration, inspiration. We are, that, that is the source of our consciousness. Our physical form is condensed, condensed light. We're light beings, we're condensed light beings. We've descended. Um, from a, essentially a perfect state of breatharianism um, down to where we are now. semi-conscious Americans day after day shuffling through the malls shopping and eating especially eating Americans love to eat they are they are fatally attracted to the slow death of fast food 
Hot dogs, corn dogs, triple bacon, cheeseburgers, deep fried butter, dipping in pork fat and cheese whiz, mayonnaise, soaked barbecued mozzarella, patty melts. America will eat anything, anything, anything. If you were selling sauteed raccoons assholes on a stick, Americans would buy them and eat them. Especially if you dipped them in butter and put a little salsa on them. This country is big time, pig time. You're fat. I cried because I knew being fat was one of the worst things that you could possibly be. So I went home that day and I talked to my mom and I told her what had happened. And she said to me, well, maybe we can go on a diet. And then maybe kids won't make fun of you for being fat. every diet that you could possibly name. And in a lot of ways, I was uh, achieving at the same time. I, uh, I had always had this dream to go to NYU on a full scholarship, I, and I got uh, it. And I graduated summa cum laude, Phi Beta Kappa, I went all to that law good school, stuff. Top five I law school. started practicing law for a number of years at prestigious I friends. I had firms. boyfriends. I was achieving in a lot of ways, but on the inside, I felt like a failure because I was consumed with how much I ate, how much I didn't eat, how much I exercised, how much I didn't exercise, what I weighed yesterday, what I'm going to weigh tomorrow. And I had what I would now call scale-dependent self-esteem. Step on the scale, you look down, and the number on the scale is up. And suddenly, things don't feel as great. And you feel ashamed, you feel like you failed, Here's a statistic that I think is going to blow your minds. 95% of people who lose weight on a diet gain it back within three to five years. And you know what? 83% of people gain back more weight than they lost. So if you've ever been in that boat of losing 10 pounds, gaining 15, losing 30, gaining 60, you're not weird. You didn't fail. You're totally normal. You're absolutely and totally normal. It's a totally normal physio physiological response. Just have the intention of loving your body. Just have that intention because what happens when you do that is you create a beautiful ripple effect. You create an invitation for others around you to love their bodies, to let go of judgment, to let go of all the messaging that we hear all day long about why our bodies are wrong and bad and need to change. So I just want you to have that intention today of loving your body, embracing body love. Thank you.
felt a very strong pull toward the subject of eating animals. Um, I'd felt it since I was a kid. Um, like most children, I thought there was something odd or maybe problematic about the idea that we would kill animals and eat them. You know, my parents would give me a stuffed animal when I cried. When they would read me to sleep at night, almost all of the books had animals as heroes. We had pets come in and out of our home, and we were instructed to treat them in a certain way. And if we didn't, we were punished, because that's not who we are. We're not the kind of people who are callous with animals. But then there was this other thing that my family did. We would eat animals. And um, like most things that your family does, it was invisible to me until somebody pointed it out. We had this radical, in every sense of the word, babysitter, who had you know, patches on her bag and listened to rock music and would, would um, dye her hair a different color every few days. And when we were served chicken at one meal, she said she wouldn't eat it. And I asked her why not. And she gave what is maybe the most naive and also most sensible answer one can give to that question, which is, um, I don't want to hurt things when it's not necessary. And I found that totally compelling as a nine-year-old. I just couldn't think of a reputation. I'm now 33, and I still cannot think of a reputation. Why would I hurt things unnecessarily? So the book actually isn't about whether it's right or wrong to eat animals. The book is about in, in the year 2011, when we have, what, about six billion people going on seven on the planet? Lots. Um, when there are 50 billion animals factory farmed every year in this world, not an imagined world, not on the moon, not 50 years ago, not 100 years in the future, but in this world, when these are our choices in front of us, what do we want to do? And what will that say about who we are? That question took on an urgency when my wife became pregnant. Before then, I was a pretty casual person in the world. Uh, certainly with food, I didn't give a lot of thought to it. I would eat, you know, sometimes I was vegetarian, sometimes I wasn't. I would swing back and forth. I certainly didn't give a lot of thought to reaching for a Coke. I now have a five-year-old. I would not reach for a Coke for him. But in a way, that's obvious because we all know the reasons why that's not a, a good drink to give to a five-year-old with any regularity. It becomes more complicated when you start to mingle story with nutrition and start exploring the ways in which the foods that we prepare and eat and how we eat those foods together tell perhaps the most important story about ourselves as individuals and as a family. At the beginning of the book, I tell a story that my grandmother told me. She was from Eastern Europe when she was fleeing the Nazis, and the Nazis were always a step behind her. At the very end, the greatest risk was actually not the Nazis, but malnutrition. There was so little food that she really wondered if she was going to be able to survive. And, and a Russian farmer saw her and saw her condition, and he went into his house and came out with a piece of meat for her. And I said, oh, this man saved your life. Already thinking as an American might, we should go find this person and give this person some money. You know, like, so, and she said, no, I didn't eat it. And I said, what, what do you mean you didn't eat it? And she said, it was pork. I wouldn't eat pork. And I thought it was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever heard. I said, not even to save your life. And she said, if nothing matters, there's nothing to save. And I think the moral of her story was not that you should be kosher, but that we have to draw lines in the sand. You know, lines that if we should cross them, they, it would require us to no longer be ourselves. We might not even be able to fully recognize ourselves anymore. Each person draws his line in a different place. But if you're somebody without such lines, then you stop being a person.
There's a thousand people in this room and I guarantee you every one of you have a different opinion. Maybe because we're about to go to recess and you're hungry. Maybe because of political convictions or environmental convictions or of culture, nature, whatever. We all have these different things that fuel us. So when we talk about food, we're not in the realm of opinion. We're in the realm of passion. We're in the realm of conviction. And in that regard, food is not entertainment like we often think of it as. It's more like religion. You know, it, we talked just the other day about how silly it would be to have five squirrels sitting around in a tree talking about what is food for their bodies. And so let's start by just acknowledging that it's, it's kind of absurd that we even need to have this conversation. We are out of touch with our own bodies and needs. Or perhaps we simply think too much. Because every other species, they know what to do. They don't have to think about it. Um, there are millions of divergent opinions about what a healthy diet looks like, and, and very little agreement on that. And that, again, doesn't does, that kind of odd? How we don't know, after all these years, what actually belongs in our own bodies. You know, it occurred to me uh, some years ago that people seem to think that food is anything that they can put in their body and not immediately fall down dead, right? If they can chew it up and swallow it and doesn't kill them, that must be food. And it's, it's not a bad definition except for the time frame. I mean, the fact is that the vast majority of people are dying as a result of what they eat. It just takes longer, and so it's not noticed by most people. There's no clear connection between the meals they're having now and the heart disease and cancer they develop later. But there's a connection, they just don't see it. To be food for a species, a substance must contain valuable nutrition. But what I want you to understand is that in nature, when an, when an animal gets a message from its body to eat, when it gets that message that it's hungry, it's looking for both calories and nutrients. Because in nature, there are no empty calories. So our bodies are looking for the same thing. And in fact, the average person's walking around with between two and four months worth of calories. But what are people doing most often? Eating empty calories. Your, your body sends you a message. It says, you know, we could use some more nutrition. Let's, let's tell the brain to get some food. Brain says, oh, hunger. I'm hungry. What, am, what does the average person do? Well, they go to the freezer, they take out a half a gallon of ice cream, and they chow down the whole thing while they're completely not conscious and watching TV. And so they've just consumed, I don't even know how many calories that is. Anybody have a guess? 3,000? 4,000? 5,000? You know, they, let's say they consume 3,000 calories. And yet, their body wanted not calories, but nutrients, and didn't get any. And so guess what happens in another hour or two? Body says, hey, get me some more food because it's looking for nutrients. And so the person says, you know what? I'm going to run down to the donut shop. I would really like to cook at home, but unfortunately I live in a serviced apartment and so there's no kitchen. I only have a kettle, so my cooking options are limited. I like to cook honey glazed gammon with ham. 
but I don't cook that anymore in Hong Kong because I don't have an oven. You've been listening to Clip Machine. Today you heard excerpts from our teacher's video series, My Favorite Food, from YouTube channel British Council Hong Kong, from David Gracer on episode 78 of The Perennial Plate, Eating Insects, from a documentary called Excuse Me for Living about Issy Sagawa, the cannibal, from YouTube channel D. Murphy 25, The Breatharian Experiment, Life is Worth Losing Stand-Up Comedy by George Carlin, Why It's Okay to Be Fat, a TEDx Talk by Golda Paretsky, an interview with Jonathan Safran Foer from YouTube channel The RSA, Food is Our Religion, a TEDx Talk by Mike Fellon, What is Food, Part 1 of 2 from Lauren Lockman. The music you heard today was Hyperlips by Calm Trues, Highway 420 by Do Make Say Think, We Are Water by Health, I Can't Stop Eating Sugar by Ed Schrader's Music Beat, Onions by Do Make Say Think, Mexican Ice Cream by Tobacco, Apocalypse by Titus, Open by Calm Trues, and The Fruit is for Everyone by The Growlers. Clip Machine is produced and edited by Will and Sarah Magnus. 